Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before this week's interview, I'd like to thank my latest subscribers on Patreon, Andrew and Barry, for their support and all of my other Patreon subscribers. Subscribing is now even easier, with the option of paying a one-off annual fee, which rewards you with a 10% discount over the year. Details of how to join the Supporters Club and gain access to even more content about the world of conductors and conducting are in the show notes attached to this episode. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who, after studying in Paris and London, has since gone on to have a highly successful career. This year, she starts as Chief Conductor and Artistic Director with the Canberra Symphony Orchestra, back home in her native Australia. It's a real pleasure to welcome Jessica Cottis. Jess, lovely to meet you, to see you, to speak with you. How are you today? I'm very well. I'm very pleased to be speaking to you today. Good. Um, as you will know, because I think you've listened to a few episodes, I always go right back to the beginning. And we're going to go to Australia, uh, where you were born, and find out if you came from a musical family, what instruments first appeared, uh, and then later became your love. How did music first start? Really, through my mother. Um, mm. We were all encouraged to play musical instruments. But uh, for me, the youngest of five kids, um, I ended up first playing the piano, really, just sitting on my mother's knee as she played herself. Yeah. And she wasn't a professional musician, uh, but a very good amateur pianist. And so from about the age of three, that was my, my introduction um, physically. But it was always uh, an environment, a family environment, full of a lot of music through my siblings or through my father listening to classical music as well. Which is nice to have music around all the time. And that's probably why my kids love listening to it. And one in particular likes singing and playing percussion. Um, at what stage did it become more than just a, a hobby? Um, it became something that, you know, to me, it became all consuming at about the age of 13, 14. Uh, cricket less so, and suddenly playing the violin was, was the big thing. When was it for you? I'm not really sure because there are two ways of looking at it sort of philosophically. One would be around the age of 17 or 18, where I thought actually I could be a musician professionally. But really for me, music was um, a means of communication, mm. of allowing myself to feel as a, as a little kid in ways that I was unable to articulate with words. So in a way I'd say, it became an all-consuming thing from about the age of three or four. Yeah, yeah. It was a way of living, really, a way of being and existing. Yeah. But you said about 17 or 18, you realised you could actually make a living out of it. At that point when, you know, you may have careers, offices in your school or... No, I remember being going to see my careers advisor at school and him saying, well, what is it going to be, a bank or the Chatham Dockyard? And I said, no, no, I'm going to be a professional violinist. And he just laughed at me. Um, it wasn't long before I was thrown out of that school anyway. But, but it, when was it that you realised, uh, actually, piano? Um, and uh, by the way, were you playing the organ as well by this point? No, I I, I entered actually uh, a Bachelor of Music programme in at the Australian National University in, in Australia where I partially grew up and that was in piano and yeah. it was really very, very, very soon before applications went in that I thought oh, this is actually something I want to do. I, I wanted to be a scientist, I wanted to yeah. study medicine, all, all other kinds of things. 
Uh, and I applied and um, I got in and I enjoyed it very much. I enjoyed mm. the piano playing, but I had an opportunity to try the organ uh, with a keyboard skills teacher who, who noticed that I was able to uh, read scores very easily and improvise and so on. And he said, well, why don't you give it a go? And if you do, you can have a position of assistant organist. Mm. Well, I'll, I'll give it a go. And within two weeks, that was it. It was it was a complete change within a fortnight. I just thought this is the best. What an amazing sound world. It's so much better than piano for me <laughs> yeah. and the possibility. Well, it's called the king of instruments, isn't it? I mean, I don't know okay. who, gave, who gave it that title, but yeah, I mean, you know, it, it is an amazing, amazing sound. Before we leave instruments completely, I did read, now I can't remember whether it was on your website or on the ever-reliable Wikipedia, that you also <laughs> played trumpet and French horn at some stage as well. Did you play them for very long or, or even to the point where did you play them in a group, a brass band or a youth orchestra or whatever? Yeah, trumpet was was my orchestral instrument throughout my youth from about the age of eight, uh, right up until my early 20s, actually. And I played oh, right. in various youth orchestras. French horn was was a mere dalliance. I, I thought <laughs> I liked the sound of it. I wanted to give it a go. Um, yeah. Just, just a few months. <laughs> yeah, but a dalliance nonetheless, which means that at some point, you know, obviously the, the organ takes over um, soon in the story, but just touching on conducting for the first time, it means that you were being conducted. Um, at any point, were you looking at the he or she stood on the podium and thinking, I wonder if I'd like a go at that? Uh, or was it just another person doing a musical job for you at this stage when you were playing the trumpet? I wasn't even thinking about it. I was just into the music that I was playing, into to making a sound and to collaborating with uh, my friends and fellow musicians. And it, it never, it literally never entered my head. Yeah, yeah. It's funny, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I, I remember just being, enjoying playing in orchestras. And it was only actually when I joined the profession, uh, partly at music college when I did have a year's study with Jonathan Del Mar, then I started thinking about what on earth these people were doing in studying in front of me. But from the age of 12 until I, you know, really I got into the CBSO age 21, 22, I wasn't, didn't give it any thought. I just thought, well, mm -hmm. they're doing that and I have to, you know, do what they ask. Um, and yeah, it's funny, isn't it? So back to the organ. And eventually you leave Australian National University and go to Paris. Uh, to carry on your organ studies. Uh, was that a big wrench? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, I think in terms of organ playing, going to going to Paris where these are, there are these incredible historical instruments yeah. uh, was, was absolutely necessary. I was so excited to do it. I think one thing to remember with the organ, which is very different from so many other instruments, is that we, we don't have our own no. instruments. Yeah. We we have to go somewhere to play. Yeah, to play. Yeah. And in the French repertoire, which is so predominant in in the organ uh, genre of organ music, then Paris is really the place. Yeah. Cesar Franck all the way up to Olivier Messiaen, all and and obviously French classical music as well. Um, it's all there. The sound world is there, and they sound completely different, certainly from the instruments I'd had the opportunity to play in Australia. Yeah, but. So in the UK, in Germany, uh, in the Netherlands, they're, they're very, very different sounds. 
and I'm, I'm assuming this may sound various, uh, rather stereotypical, that the organs in Australia were a lot newer because of the age of the country compared to some of the older ones you were playing in Europe and would have been playing in France, and therefore different skills to learn or different uh, pipes and, and, and settings and controls? Yes, I, I, the thing with organ is that a lot of the contemporary organ builders will build instruments that will be influenced by a previous yeah. style. So we obviously in Australia, we still have instruments that would be seen in, in the French style or a neoclassical style or whatever. But there's nothing like actually sitting at yeah. one of these instruments. And they're so physical as well. There's nothing, some of, the, there's, some of them have nothing modern about them. It's, it's like a full on workout to do <laughs> a three hour practice session on yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I read things went slightly awry. Um, it, it mentions a wrist injury. What happened? Um, and which meant that you had to give up playing. Um, and does it ever still bother you now? Because, you know, let's face it, at least one of our wrists as a conductor we use uh, pretty much all the time. What happened? And uh, and how did you cope with suddenly having a, a door shut? Obviously, other doors will have opened. But, uh, but what happened? Uh, I got something that's called carpal tunnel syndrome, ah. uh, which is a inflammation of the sheath around the nerves. Yes. Um, that go to the fingers and uh, I guess it was probably an overuse injury mm. and it, it really meant that I, I couldn't really use my fingers properly anymore a couple of fingers on each hand and it was very very risky so sometimes it was okay I could play and then yeah. sometimes it wasn't and it's just it's not possible to be a professional musician if we you know our bodies aren't working no. yeah. so I had a very difficult decision actually um and uh i mean it's a while it's a long time ago now so but it, they were and it's almost a different world actually for me but they were really dark days mm. because i'd played keyboard instruments since pre-dating my earliest memories really mm. and to lose that to lose that form of expression that connection uh with making music was was extremely difficult um, and I had to work out, of course, well, what am I going to do with myself now? Uh, mm. And I, I, I studied law for a year and that was very interesting, but it was clear to me that I needed really to remain within the world of music. Mm. And it was at that point and, and a little bit beforehand that I was thinking, well, maybe conducting is something that I could, I could explore at least as a possibility. Mm. And you explored it at one of the best places to explore it, um, uh, the Royal Academy of Music. Had you conducted anybody or anything before you started at the Royal Academy in 2006? Uh, I read it was Colin Metters and Colin Davis at that time. Mm. Oh. But had you done much at all um, before you auditioned or uh, got in? Very little. Mm. Uh, I was quite a novice. Uh, <laughs> and I, to, do, to this day, I feel very grateful that they, they let me in those doors. <laughs> I had done a bit. I, I realised that if I was interested in conducting, that I at least need to get, needed to give it a go. Yeah. So I got some friends together and uh, we put on a scratch performance, a concert performance of The Marriage of Figaro. Wow. And with cuts, yeah. uh, all pretty much on the day with the orchestra and so on. And that was it. I, I thought to myself, actually, this is this this could work. So I, I need to go and learn actually what I'm doing. 
and I went on a couple of courses over the course uh, over that sort of nine month period and a year period and and then yeah auditioned for the academy and it's there that I was able to learn a technique that could share my musical ideas mm. yeah. in this, the, the world that I had in my head. It was really, I, I didn't really know how to conduct. Mm. But you had all of the musical skills you've just said about learning, being able to read a score and playing organ. You had all of the theoretical skills you knew about harmony, you knew about, it, it was the, it was the, you know, going from not ever really conducting very much and learning the basics of what we do with our hands and arms and face and eyes and all of that to rehearsal technique and, and you know, you're learning at the best place. Um, do you think that your scratch marriage of Figaro was where you got, as a mate of mine called it, stickitis, and as Hawk and Hardenberger was warned, uh, you took your first draft of stick poison? Um, or was it later when you got to the Academy and under Colin Metters and Colin Davis that you suddenly realised, I'm hooked on this? Um, because we're all hooked on it eventually. It's, it is a dangerous drug. It, it strangely it wasn't that Mozart it was in sitting in the audience in Vienna at the State Opera and a, it was around a very similar time and I heard De Rosenkavalier mm. and that actually for me was the light bulb moment where I realized that this world of musical color and timbre and combinations of sounds that I'd had with the organ could be found even more so with the symphony orchestra mm. and in that particular occasion with the singers as well mm. and that that really was a light bulb moment for me the kind of thing where I, I I found it difficult to sleep that night I was trying to ignore it but I just couldn't mm. uh, and and that that was yeah less about physically being on the podium but actually existing within this universe of sound. So what are your memories of your three years at the Academy with Colin Metazor and Colin Davis? Um, I'm thinking, you know, how much time did you spend with one Colin as opposed to the other? What did you get from musically from one that you didn't get from another? What did you get technically from one that you didn't get from another? How can you assimilate those three years with the two Collins? Well, most of the time, our our primary professor was Colin Metters, and from him, I I owe him so much actually because he's one of these teachers who imparts a philosophy of conducting, hmm. a technical philosophy of conducting of effectively sort of carrying the sounds and arrival and a departure at the same time. And in doing so, he so, it was so incredibly frustrating at the time that he very rarely showed us what to do. Mm. He'd give us a kernel of an idea or a thought or um, a provocation really. And then we'd have to bang our heads against a wall trying to find a way to do it. And sometimes it would take weeks but in doing that, there was a real exploration yeah. and a blossoming of the techniques through, through this method of teaching. Uh, so he was, yeah, extraordinary, actually, in this kind of overview of how we would develop. And then from Colin Davis, I mean, musically, just extraordinary. And the yeah. generosity that he brought to his music making as well and 
talking through scores and so on was, I mean, they were just really gorgeous times, really wonderful times. I'm going to jump miles ahead on my notebook, dear listeners, because something's just popped into my head. It's about exactly what you were just talking about, where where teachers, and I'm lumping in my own experience as a violin teacher here, um, do or don't demonstrate. Now, I used to demonstrate quite a lot as a violinist, but I think as a violin teacher, but I think that I also used to give them technical understanding as to what I was doing and how I was doing it. When I teach conducting, I don't necessarily demonstrate that much, but I do demonstrate. We've both, I, it's, uh, from 2014, you've been a visiting professor at the Royal Conservatory of Scotland, where I've also taught as a lovely class there as well. When you teach, do you demonstrate now, or do you stick to what Colin made you do? Do you know, do you know what I mean? And, and this whole thing about sometimes just by watching somebody or listening to somebody demonstrate, you, the light bulb will go on or the penny will drop. But I, I, I t- completely understand also that there are great teachers out there who don't play their instrument and don't demonstrate. And by working it out yourself, you get a much deeper understanding of how it works. How do you teach now? And do you look back on those times and think, well, actually, I do demonstrate or I don't? Do you, how do you do it? A lot of it has to do with context. Mm. If, if I were teaching a student or a group of students over a period of two years, say, yeah. then I think I would... I would show, I would demonstrate at times, but perhaps not too frequently because there's the time and the space for that development. If I'm coming in and doing a masterclass or a couple of sessions, then I've got a limited amount of time to Mm. be able to really inspire and help that emerging conductor. So I would definitely if, if needed, I would definitely demonstrate. It's also, some people are very visual, aren't they? Or mm. very uh, physical in a way that if they can see what it is, then they can grasp it. And I always feel even if, and there are two ways, if somebody understands something intellectually, but can't do it physically, that's okay, because mm. it will come in due course. And it's the same thing, if somebody understands something physically, but maybe philosophically hasn't, quite got to the deeper understanding of it that's also okay Mm. because it just it takes flying hours doesn't it yeah it does just Mm. takes time and none of these things happen overnight none of these things happen in one session it can take days or weeks or sometimes even longer depending it's very true i mean the times i've been to, to glasgow and worked there as i said thoroughly enjoyed it but what normally happens is you might have a three hour class with three or four students with two pianos and yeah. then go and work for three hours with the orchestra and 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 there's sometimes a quick fix of you know have you tried this gesture here you know I'm quite a gestural conductor um I'll, I'll try any gesture to get what I want you know <laughs> rather than stopping and talking about it or whatever um mainly it's down to the sort of gigs I've ended up conducting you know the three three hour Ursuline concerts we haven't got time <laughs> yeah. we haven't got time to talk um yeah. but you're exactly right. In those sort of days, you know, you, you really want them to feel, get a feeling that, you know, they're, they're on the learning curve, they're going up, they're picking up advice from you that, um, yeah, that, that demonstrating, I think, really does help. But I think yeah, over a longer period, absolutely, um, let them work it out for themselves intellectually. So you graduate in 2009 and immediately start in Scotland assisting at the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Who was the music director then? Were you there every single week uh, watching guests? 
how much conducting did you do? Because from there, not long afterwards, uh, two or three years later, you then go to be assistant of the Sydney Symphony Orchestra, where it says you conducted over 30 times in a year. Was that similar with the BBC Scottish? And did you learn an awful lot from the music directors of both of those places? Many questions. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> BBC Scottish. So it was Donald Ronicles who was chief mm. conductor at the time. And I was there for all of his weeks. Uh, I was there for most of Ilan Volkov's weeks. He was principal, principal guest conductor. And I would also, if I had time, because it was a, a, dual, a dual position working with uh, some of the student ensembles also at mm. uh, the Royal Conservatory of Scotland. I'd try and get to as many rehearsals as possible. Yeah. But it was such an incredible time working as Donald's assistant and the repertoire that he worked on as well, the, the, the late Germanic repertoire, uh, a lot of Sibelius, uh, Wagner, Bruckner, Mahler, all a, a lot of really big stuff. And, and what I really benefited from that time was with him was his I think really individual and unique ability to shape and mold the architecture mm. of an epic work in an incredibly organic manner um, so that yeah there were wonderful times I, I actually conducted the orchestra quite a lot uh, in education projects I had a couple of step-ins uh, one was a jump in for James Dillon's Nine Rivers, which was a huge multi-hour project uh, of a number of different pieces that had been written over the last 30 years. Uh, so yeah, it was, I was given uh, a, a wonderful opportunity to work with them and uh, it's nice to return to that orchestra mm -hmm. since then as well. Sydney was um, a, a bit different in that I was there when uh, Vladimir Ashkenazi was in town. He was the chief conductor then and, and a lot of the visiting conductors as well. But the difference with that is that I was really part of the staff of the orchestra and we were doing, I mean, so many education concerts, I was doing subscription concerts uh, at the Opera House then also at the smaller hall in Sydney. So it was, a, it was a very, very busy time, very varied repertoire. And often on the podcast, I've talked about, you know, what a wonderful thing it is to be an assistant conductor. To, if you can get a job doing that for two years, and you've done it twice, two years each time, what an amazing thing is, it is to sit and watch these rehearsals with these great conductors. You learn so much. But I always say the benefit is not only that, it's it's standing in a TQ. It's going for a pint after a rehearsal. It's go with the, the players of the orchestra and just picking their brains or even, you know, finding somebody you can be honest with you and say, hey, actually, I really enjoyed that today. Thank you. Your conducting is brilliant. But can I give you a piece of advice about that corner of that piece or whatever? Did you did you really get as much of that from the players as, uh, as I think you should? Um, and also mixed in with all of the stuff, the other stuff, the watching and the, and the picking the conductor's brains. Definitely. The interaction with the players in both orchestras was very profound, actually, because a lot of the time there'll be players who've been in the orchestra for 30 years. Absolutely, yeah. Maybe they've done Mahler one 50 times. Mm. Mm. Uh, maybe they've done the Sibelius Violin Concerto 30 times uh, with different conductors over the decades and over the years. So there's, it's like a living history 
that we we can interact with and we can learn from and uh, make music with. So yeah, absolutely. It's something you know. I look obviously. I did twenty two years playing before I became a conductor. So you know, I got that myself. But it doesn't mean that I knew what was difficult in the second bassoon part or why that bit on the third and fourth horns always sounded a little, a little bit difficult on a Monday morning, but why by Wednesday was always better. And it gave me the chance to go and ask them. Uh, fortunately, they were friends, but, you know, because I'd spent years playing with them. But you know what I mean? It is such a resource. And as Martin Brabin said way back in episode seven or something, you got to remember that when we start first start conducting, in actual terms of years compared to some of these people you're conducting, you are, you're not just a novice, you're a child. You know, as you just said, <laughs> yeah. you, you could be conducting people who've played for 35 years and who are nearing the end, nearing the end of their career who have played everything, you know, dozens of times. And to not absorb that and not go and ask the questions, yeah, uh, it would be foolish. But yeah, it, it's such a, such a big... Uh, resource to use hmm. um whilst you're at the royal academy of music you founded bloomsbury opera hmm. um which a lot of new brand new operas new commissions and since 2014 you've been principal conductor of the glasgow new music expedition uh, again new music is that something a conscious decision or is it just something that is a uh, uh, sort of you know as we all do in our lives we meander in certain directions and we fall into into a position uh, how did Bloomsbury Opera come about uh, was it on the back of your major Figaro uh, uh, and uh, and also the Glasgow New Music Expedition and how what does new music mean to you uh, and do you enjoy that challenge of I love it when a brand new score comes through that you think nobody's ever heard this other than inside the composer's brain yeah, I love it. I, mm. I love it when I get a fresh score that no one's ever played and I open it up for the first time and here's, here's something that's never been heard. Mm. How cool is that? Yeah, yeah. I, it's just, it's so thrilling. Even just talking to you about it, I, I feel excited by it. And this, this possibility also that the composer is still alive and there's a possibility of meeting for a coffee and talking about the piece or picking up the phone or having a Zoom conversation and yeah. really getting in and understanding what it is about the piece that, that makes it tick and at the heart of it. But to go back to the earlier part <laughs> yeah. of the question, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, Bloomsbury Opera. So this was a kind of, uh, I, I felt when I was at the Academy that I needed more time on a podium actually making music yes. with musicians and uh, as a conductor. And I was living in halls of residence actually, and decided that maybe a good idea would be just get my friends together and see what we can do. And mm. we happen to have a lot of fantastic singers and a lot of fantastic musicians from the London colleges. So I just thought, well, I'll, I'll see what I can do. And our first one was uh, the magic flute and it went really well. I managed to get a reasonable amount of sponsorship from that for the mm. next ones. And, and so that continued throughout my academy years and actually post-academy as well. And now someone else is doing it. Mm. Um, but it was uh, it's just the best possibility to work with friends. And all of us really wanted to do it. A lot of people wanted to debut roles or try them out. A lot of people wanted to play in the orchestra. It was useful for their own development. So it's very communal and collegiate mm. and uh, friendly. 
new music, uh, on the other hand, was something really that I, well, I feel very passionately about, but I did fall into it mm. career-wise. And I guess we all have particular strengths uh, or interests. And for me, I just, I just get a real thrill conducting difficult music. <laughs> mm. I, 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 just, I just enjoy it. Yeah. It's, it's a purely personal thing. There's nothing rational or logical about it. I just really enjoy it. Mm. Mm. Um, so I, I always um, would have a certain number of weeks per year that I would I would schedule in for, for new music of interesting projects. I mean, there are two points there. Um, you know, that, as you said, difficult, uh, especially technically difficult music. I always come off when I've done something for the first time, be it world premiere or the first time I conducted The Ride to Spring, come off and think, yeah, I nailed that. You know, that, but also to to be clear and to to really help the players. and uh, that In that music like that, it's almost, well, it's, it's you're so much more needed than say a Mozart symphony or a Haydn symphony yeah. or you know just the, on the technical level. I'm not talking about the musical level. I'm talking about the the reason you're stood there with the baton and your hands and arms and gestures and whatever else. You're needed so much more. Um, yeah, it's really, really, really interesting. Um, it is, and I think there's another element also with with new music is this new sound, new yes. ways of putting sounds together, and it's quite, can I use the term ear opening? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes, yeah. And, and not mind opening, yes, but ear opening as well to hear new possibilities. Yeah. And often I find that then maybe in a program, maybe there is some Mozart or there's some Brahms or something like that. And then I, we all hear differently through what we've been working on with, with, the, new, with the newer music. Mm. It's very fresh. And that, that there's always a moment I always find when new music or with an arrangement of something or whatever, but definitely with new music, where you, you're studying it in your study and you look at a, the score and you think you can hear what it sounds like. And then you put it together with, it, or, you know, get the orchestra to play it. And it's, it's different. It is sort of what you, you thought it was going to sound like, but better. You know, and you stand there and think, oh, my God, wow, what a colour. I didn't expect it quite that vivid. Um, actually, which brings me on to an, another thing I read on, on Wikipedia. Um, synesthesia, I read. You've, you've got a form of synesthesia, um, which I don't have. But, I mean, it's funny talking about colours and orchestral colours. Um, have you always had it? And, and, and have you always wondered, well, especially as a child, did you wonder what was going on? How does it manifest itself? Because I've, I've never spoken to anybody with it. Uh, well, I have chromesthesia, which is uh, when I hear sound when I hear music notes I experience it as color yeah and so this was I mean I, I never realized it was a thing I, I as a child it was just there mm. and I guess the the parallel with that would be uh, uh, when we're children we don't think about how how we see necessarily mm. uh, we don't necessarily think about how we taste or no, listen it just is so I yeah I just felt or saw music as color and it was not until I was a bit older and I mentioned it to a couple of friends and I realized that it was 
it was a little bit different and I probably should just keep quiet about it. <laughs> but it's that, you know, a fabled story about somebody saying, you know, that chord just needs to be a little bit bluer or slightly less purple or whatever. Um, you know, I don't, I can't understand how that can manifest itself, but it, it must be fascinating to you. Um, it fascinates it, me. It is. I mean, it's quite a personal thing in that if I, if I were to say to an orchestra, um, you know, this should be yellow with flecks of white coming through in the top right-hand corner. It, it doesn't mean anything. No, no, of course it doesn't. Really, yeah. I mean, apart from some sort of primary colours, we can say dark mm. red, that probably has, you know, a, a common effect. Yeah. But, but it is, it's a personal thing. But it, it does, if, if I don't see a colour with clarity, mm. then physically there's something that's still fuzzy. Going all the way back to the start of this very long question, there was another point I wanted to bring up, which is this podium time. You know, you were at the Academy, as you said, you wanted to conduct more than just what you were being offered. Doesn't necessarily mean that what you were being offered was stingy or not enough time, but if you, you suddenly get the bug for it, you do want to go and conduct more people. Um, and you did it your way. I went and conducted a couple of amateur orchestras to get my fix and to learn my repertoire in a quiet place that people weren't going to spot. Um, but you're right. Uh, you know, the more we do, the more you do it, 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 the better you get. There is no, no way you can study it. You just have to go out there and do it. You know, that's, that's so true. It absolutely is. And I don't think anything can prepare one for the overwhelmingness. Is that a word? The overwhelming sound of a symphony orchestra when you're standing right in front of it. Mm. And, and that takes some, and it's a wonderful thing, but it also takes some getting used to uh, this feeling like being encapsulated by this world of vivid color and mm. then working with the musicians in a way to, to shape and mold that. And that takes practice mm. and, and time. It's very easy to stand there and become overwhelmed by it and forget to do the thing that you're stood on the podium to do. Yeah, uh, so it's first, yeah. I don't know if you remember the first time you stood on the podium, but but I remember one of the first times, and I just remember thinking, this is this just this is amazing. Mm, I could mm. just stand here all day, and then we realize actually we have a job to do. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I will tell a story here about a day we did at the CBSA where where I which I was conducting. Uh, and it was with some senior partners of a, an accountancy group, a big accountancy group. I think it was KPMG. And they'd come in and there was an animateur or a presenter. And the, he was, we played the third movement of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony, the pizzicato with then the woodwind section, then the brass and the timbs, and then back to the pizzicato and all of that. Explained, and the, the, these partners were sitting in the CBSO in various chairs dotted around, and they were obviously, in their minds were being totally blown by this sitting next to professional musicians. They then had to go away and write their own third movement um, and then came back, and we all talked about it. We talked about the roles of what the conductor does, but also you know, the, the hierarchy within sections and all of that sort of stuff. And the day came to an end, or so they thought, with another reprise of the third movement of Chike 4. By then they'd swap seats and they'd changed to different positions and they were just sitting there and they were loving it. What they didn't know was that I was going to go attack her into the finale 
uh, and play the finale for them for them as the end of the day. When we hit the first quarter of the finale of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Century, the guy who was sat next to Pete Hill, the timpanist, almost had to be carried out. Um, there were people just, I've never seen human beings' faces so wide-eyed. It looked like a cartoon, jaws hitting floors, eyes popping out of their heads, heads turning in every direction trying to work out what on earth was going on. And I think what I would love people to do what we do is to come and stand next to us while we're conducting orchestra and realise what it sounds like from that position. There, there isn't a, you know, there isn't a place in a, in a concert hall which sounds quite the same as us. Uh, and yeah, I, it, more people would, would fall in love with this music if they got a chance to just stand there for 10 minutes next to us doing what we do. I think so. Um, maybe it's something we could, you know, a prize for subscribers in a concert hall somewhere where they get to stand next to the conductor for the overture in a concert. I don't know. Maybe, we, yeah, maybe I've hit on something. We'll see. <laughs> Could be some kind of conveyor belt that comes across so that lots of people can experience yeah. go across the front of the stage very slowly so people come up to the podium and then experience it for their 30 seconds and then move, move across <laughs> yeah. probably not it's probably not going to catch on but no no but it's, a, it's a fantasy idea um before we go into guesting this year earlier this year in 2021 uh, you became chief conductor and artistic director of the canberra symphony orchestra so back home um, you said earlier before I press record that you've just started. How long have you just started? What are the plans of you? I mean, obviously you've you've been this the most devil's own job at the moment. It's planning post COVID, you know, um, bringing people back into concert halls. I know Australia's been different, but what's it been like, and what are you looking forward to in the in the over the next few years? Yeah, well, I started formally uh, early this year. We had a number of concerts when I when I was back in Australia, and. However, I did start last year with mm. the programming and yeah. uh, looking at everything. So, yeah, well, well into last year. And already, actually, it's, it's been great. We've managed to develop a new commissioning series of works by Australian composers. Um, we've deepened our relationship with various national institutions uh, in Canberra as well, including connections with uh, the National Museum of Australia and yeah, other organizations and really looked to broaden uh, some of our work that we do with new Australian music. And so that's a real remit for the orchestra that we uh, develop and we look to really invest in Australian music alongside, of course, all the canonic repertoire as well. And so the, the next few years are, are looking really great. Um, fantastic repertoire. I can't actually say because we haven't even <laughs> launched for next year, um, but great repertoire, great soloists and uh, a continuation of these. Uh, we have a program called the Australian series, which is all new Australian music. This year, actually, we had Deborah Cheatham, uh, soprano and composer, Yorta Yorta, soprano and composer who came in and, and programmed all of that incredibly thoughtfully and intelligently and imaginatively. And, and this, this collaboration will continue in, into years to come as well. It sounds exciting. And I, I fully understand you. You can't say what's coming because, you know, people, that's what orchestras do. They wait until it's all fully formed and then surprise everybody. What it means 
is that there'll be less weeks a year that you are on the hamster wheel of guest conducting, um, which uh, a phrase I've used on and off throughout the whole of the 80-odd episodes of the podcast. Why? Because we can go round and round and round in circles, but actually hamsters enjoy being on the wheel, and sometimes it's difficult to get off. How do you, do you have any coping strategies for meeting a brand new orchestra for the first time? There's that moment when you walk out, I, I, my butterflies are always in my stomach every time I do it, and I've done it 40-odd times now, new orchestras, and then you put that beat down and you have no idea what time, when it's the when they're going to play, how they're going to play. Um, how do you enjoy it? I'm always a bit nervous before the first rehearsal. Aren't we all? Yeah, I'm sure we all are. And then I made a decision with myself that that's kind of a waste of energy. <laughs> so I reduce that I allow myself sort of 10 to 15 minutes <laughs> of nervousness and normally uh, I just walk onto the podium obviously say hello to people walk onto the podium I try and conduct as much music as I possibly can mm. and ideally in that first session if I can say hardly anything that's great mm. just because I, I have no idea what's going to do how we're going to interact how they're going to play how it's going to sound nothing so I figure we just we're all here to make music, mm. um, so that's what I do. And and also, it, it, I don't think I could do it any other way. I just want to get in and, and see what what we can create. And then once once we've done that, then there's we we know each other musically, mm. which is which is enough. Well, especially if you spend most of that opening session conducting, you're forming the relationship through the music and through each other doing the job. Uh, I try not to talk too often or for too long if I have to talk, you know, but not for too long. Um, Cause I often found as a player that when the conductors open their mouths too often, I, <laughs> that was when I was starting to reach for the, the switching off button or, you know, or, or not be quite as, you know, up for it as involved. But yeah, I think it's a very good strategy. You know, you have to say hello. You're always welcomed by somebody, an intendant or a chief executive, and there's always that awkward moment when they applaud you just for turning up uh, and you haven't done anything yet, you know, and then you start conducting. Um, but, yeah, it's, I think it's a very good strategy. Um, I enjoy it, but as you said, try keep try to keep the nerves down to a minimum. You know, I always tell myself, you know, you wouldn't be here unless you're any good. They wouldn't have invited you if you weren't any good. And you've done the homework and on the scores. So what are you nervous about? But then it's always going to creep in. But it, it, there's always this nervousness, I think, of the unknown. Mm. It, it's sure we have a score in front of us, but how it's the very beginning of this process of bringing that piece to life in that week. How is that going to happen? It's a yeah. mix. It is a mixture, isn't it, of a bit of nerves and excitement. What yeah. are the possibilities, and how are we going to get there? Mm, absolutely. I just mentioned it doing our homework, and you've listened to a few episodes, so you'll know. I ask everybody this: How do you prepare a score? Being a keyboard person, do you sit at the piano often, and work, especially with new music, to learn your scores, or is a lot of it done with your inner ear at the desk? And do you use coloured pencils, pencils or nothing at all? Are you a, a learn it straight into the brain person? Uh, I don't sit at the piano, actually. I do it all in my head. Yeah. Pretty much like 95% in my head. School marking, I start very macro. Mm. So I look to find a, a, a kind of a broad shape of the piece, very broad scope and then from that 
so say structure, very broad structure, then I piece in smaller mm. elements until it's almost like a skeleton, which then develops flesh and another system and um, circulation and so on and skin. And, mm. But that takes time, but always building from the outer into the, into the minute details. Do I use colored pencils? I do actually, and I have a very particular scheme so for me, string instruments tend to be uh, in a more red hue in the realm of red. So I mark mm. them red and woodwinds are, of course, blue. <laughs> and brass instruments have a, a sort of forest green quality. <laughs> so I mark them in, in yeah. green. And percussion, I also mark green. And um, yeah, there are some various extra instruments who would, who would get a couple of extra colors but they're my three colors yeah i don't yeah, mark I, anything else yeah i use red blue and black and and completely differently but yeah as long as it's a system that you understand then uh, and you know people say well doesn't it stop you looking at the score actually i think it brings things off the page for me more and it means that i'm not looking at the score so much because i'm you know i can see things bouncing up off the page at me in their colors no. Yeah, I, I suspect that this use of colour and marking on scores is actually not, it's, it, we don't need it when we conduct. It's there from, from the desk work. Yes. So that, that second part of being a conductor, not standing up in front of or orchestras and, and making music, but that um, almost element of paleontology where we dig into a score and, and how do we um, collate all of that information? And I think that's at least for me that's where the color comes in it's very much a learning process yeah then is there when i conduct when it's on the stand as a kind of nostalgic memory of the process i've been mm. through absolutely i remember writing things in and think i know what's coming over the page now by the way i love your analogy about the the body building from the bones out uh, i should be stealing it i uh, hope you don't mind <laughs> <laughs> that's two i'm stealing now from the answers to this question the other one was Barry Wordsworth, who basically gave exactly the same answer as you, but he said to him, it's like driving to a beauty spot. You get out of the car and you go, oh, that's beautiful. Then you notice a church spire. Then you notice a clump of trees you didn't think were there. Then you notice a stream meandering off into the distance. And you and the more and the more you look, the more you see things. Uh, yes. And so a very similar uh, outlook on how to learn a score with a completely different analogy. But yeah, I should be stealing both. Uh, <laughs> Is conducting still a bit of a mystery to you? Would you like to know more? Well, you can find out all sorts of secrets, tips, opinions and much more on my Patreon page. You can hear interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers and hear their thoughts on conducting and conductors. You can read my diaries when I go on guest conducting trips abroad. You can take part in group meetings with other like-minded conducting fans. You can read articles on conducting and conductors, and you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities worldwide, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Jessica Cottis. Jessica, it is 10 questions time, and it's the moment that all conductors are waiting for, or maybe not. We'll see. And I start as ever with, what sound or noise do you love, and what sound or noise do you hate? 
Uh, so the sound I really hate is when I'm standing at traffic lights as a pedestrian and somebody revs their car or their motorcycle really loudly. I absolutely hate that. It ruins the next five minutes for me. <laughs> I hate it. Hate. Should be stopped. There should be a law against that. It's <laughs> unnecessary as well. Um, sound I love is of nature, mm. of wildlife, of birds. Um, in, in really any setting, you know, in the desert, that sort of extraordinary silence punctuated by the occasional bird call. That's mm. just, there. That's, that's a wonderful sound. Going back to your first answer, have you ever been to Buenos Aires? No. May I suggest that you never do then? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, seriously, Buenos Aires is one of the most amazing places on the planet. But cutting right through the middle of downtown Buenos Aires is this famous road called the Avenue of the 9th of July. It's, a, it's 20 lanes wide. It's an entire block wide. Uh, and in the middle, there is a, a six-lane motorway going in both directions. And, the, and then there are two roads on the outside. So it's 20 lanes. And you, if you are staying in one particular very famous hotel, to get to the Teatro Colón, you have to cross that road twice a day. And it is a pedestrian crossing. And there are literally dozens of them down the... But uh, there's a timer on the, on the, the traffic lights, so you know how long you've got to get across. But, you know, if you're crossing there and there's anything in between 15 and 10 seconds to go, there is nothing but six lanes of people doing exactly that and motorbikes in between. So, yeah, either get a hotel on the right side of the road of Chetra Colon when you go and work there or just don't go there. <laughs> well, that's, that's a nightmare. I, I'd bring earplugs. Yeah. No, but seriously, it is one of the greatest cities on the planet. I love <laughs> the place. I've been there so many times. I love it. But, yeah, don't go if you don't like traffic. Number three. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I would, so actually I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Could I travel somewhere but not within that 24 hours? Can I just plant myself somewhere else? Yeah, it's it's very open, this podcast. You, yeah, you can cheat but as much as you right. like. <laughs> right. so, so I've travelled yeah. and I've arrived in Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And I think I would like to do that for 24 hours and experience this vast landscape with just ice and rock and no trees no plants and incredibly diverse uh, in unique landscape and wildlife um i i would love to do that i think there are something like 18 different species of penguins on <laughs> antarctica so i mean that just it sounds it sounds incredible to me the whenever i've seen film of it or documentaries about it it's the colour that amazes me. And it's not white. It, it's just blues in there, different blues. And, yeah, um, I like cold places. Uh, it sounds like, uh, yeah, my next-door neighbours have been. Um, wow. And they, they they got a boat there from Chile or from uh, Argentina, and they've been, and they said it was amazing. So, yeah, maybe one day. Yeah, brilliant, brilliant answer. Never had that before. Wonderful answer. Name favourite conductor of yesteryear or conductors. I would say uh, Nicol Nicholas Hanencourt. Mm. And for me, because he was able to bring so much intellect and scholarship to his music making, but combine it with imagination. Yeah. And his performances, his recordings, 
never failed to illuminate. Uh, they're always really innovative. He's so meticulous, um, but there's also real heart there. And from that, I feel that there's a huge amount of theatre mm. in whether he's doing opera or symphonic works. It's just so theatrical. Mm. And, and there's, some, for me, just something very special there. Whether I like or dislike a, a recording or a performance is, is immaterial. I'm always enchanted and delighted by what I hear. Mm. It's his use of language in the rehearsals, uh, his use of metaphor, yeah. You know, finding a metaphor for the, the music, you know, he is the perfect case in point of you don't necessarily need this, you know, music college or university educated conducting technique to get your points across because you would never teach anybody to conduct that way. Um, probably not. Um, you know, it, 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 he was my choice in episode 50 and in the taster episode. So, um, uh, so. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with you. Um, and as you said, it's not necessarily about whether you agree with his what he's done stylistically or interpretively, but it's got real um, depth behind it and thought process behind it and energy. There's almost so much energy in yeah. what he did. Yeah. Um, excellent choice. Now, number five, of course, is the question that uh, Daniel Harding called cruel. Uh, some other conductors um, find it difficult to answer. In fact, one conductor refused to answer it. Um, and that is, who would be a favourite current conductor or conductors? Yeah, this is a really difficult question. I, I'm i going to go with Tony Papano. And that this is because that any time I have sat in the opera house and listened to him conduct an opera, I have been transported mm. to a different world and the lushness of the playing again the theatricality that's there the drama that he brings out in the music um of anything that i've heard him conduct it's just i, I go as an as an audience member obviously i'm interested as a conductor as well and then i forget everything i forget myself and i'm just in the performance mm. and, and the and good news for all British concert goers is that pretty soon, you know, we'll be able to see him actually on the concert stage and see him conduct more. You know, I, you can only see so much from when the conductor's in a pit, uh, unless you're, you know, you're sitting in the specific places in a in an opera house. Uh, when he starts with the music director of the London Symphony Orchestra, but another great choice. Um, he was a delight to interview um, earlier on in the series, and uh, yeah, wonderful. What is the hardest work you've ever conducted? I would say the most difficult work I have ever conducted is by Gerald Barry. Mm -hmm. And it's his opera, his first opera from 1990 called The Intelligence Park. And we did this at the Opera House a couple of years back. It's two hours of uncompromising tempo changes, meter changes, extremely fast. The singers are doing all kinds of virtuosic leaps constantly and so is the orchestra as well and it, it doesn't really stop it just keeps going uh, <laughs> it's it, it's surreal and demanding and it was actually really rewarding mm. uh, by the time we got to the first performance but it was it was just difficult on absolutely everyone and yeah. even even the story is 
Dublin in the 1750s it was a bit obscure as well. So it demanded a lot from everyone. I'd say that was, was the most difficult. And then uh, actually more recently at Holland Park, we did the Cunning Little Vixen. And on a couple of occasions, the rain in central London was so loud on the tarpaulin of, of the big, big tent there that yeah. we, yeah, I wondered if we'd need to stop. And there was one point where ladders fell down and there were pigeons flying out of the wings and <laughs> things like that. Um, it was, it was great. It was, well, it was, it was, it was challenging in a, de in a delightful and charming manner. Well, uh, the pigeons probably, you know, a, an extra element to the story of the cunning little yeah. vixen. Um, Gerald, uh, Gerald Barry's music, I remember, vividly remember the first time playing any of it. Uh, I've never conducted any of it, but the music I've heard of his, I've really liked. But we played a piece, Tom Addis was conducting, um, and it was called Chevaux de Frise. And it was mm. almost exactly how you described that opera. It was relentless, technically so hard. Uh, it was just so such crazy music i remember sitting there trying to learn to play this stuff thinking well i don't know if anybody can hear the rubbish i'm playing here but the, the, this this is just i've never heard music like this um and so i've enjoyed everything i've ever heard of his and it, it definitely a composer i want to explore more of uh, in the future yeah, i i found that his music became a bit addictive it is it, a bit like a drug once you once you delve into it and the complexities of it it's you kind of want more when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? For me, I like to travel with a book of butterfly identification. Yes, I'd read this. You're, you're a lepidopterist, much like my father. Uh, so, you know, over the years, I've learned a little bit more about butterflies than most people. And do you, if you had a day off, and would you go out and seek to find some? Yes, yeah. always. And, and just to clarify, I'm assuming you're uh, you're somebody who photographs them rather than hopes to catch any and put them in a display case. It's an interesting question. I, I don't capture them, uh, of no. course. I don't. I, I mean, I photograph them just for my own records. Yeah. But I'm not. I you know I don't have a fancy camera. I'm I'm not chasing them for the perfect photograph. I I just want to see them yeah. and experience them and uh, watch their behaviors and and sometimes you don't know you might go to a particular place having heard that a particular butterfly might be there at a particular time of day and there's the hope that you'll spot them yeah yeah i remember going to a supermarket outside penne in abruzzo in italy on our holiday the first time we went there and i went just with my wife and my but my mum and dad were back at the villa and i parked up um my wife went off to get a shopping trolley. And right next to me on one of the worst bits of patch of rubbish I've ever seen in my life were about <laughs> 10 swallowtail butterflies. And I'd never seen one. And, and you know, I know back home you know, here in the UK, they're rather rare. I, I was amazed. Um, of course, yeah. I went back and told my father and said, oh, well, we've got to go back there. I said, well, well, we're bound to go back to that supermarket later in the week. And, of course, there they were. But, yeah, I remember th thinking, <laughs> well, that's it. My father's hobby has definitely touched me somewhere. I knew that they were swallowtails. And uh, they are beautiful things, absolutely beautiful things. I'm not as obsessed about them as maybe you are. I'm definitely not my father is. But, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful answer. Another one nobody's given before. Brilliant. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? So this is less about conducting and 
more about how we make music and how we schedule it, but which seems very practical. Uh, But I think for me, I would like, especially in opera, I'd like more collaboration from everyone. Because we come in, we do a couple of days music rehearsals with the singers, great. And then we spend six weeks putting things into production with a director and only then does the orchestra play a part. And Mm. this for me is absolute madness because so many of the interactions, it's not just the singers, what they're singing or it's not just the acting, there are interactions between the orchestral part and the vocal parts and this joining of stage and, and pit as it were I would, I would love to be able to um, change that sometimes. I think on a musical and aesthetical level, if that's the right word, I agree with you wholeheartedly. The problem is that the bean counters above would say, well, oh, there's no way we can afford the orchestra to come in, even for another three or four days into further back into the run. Or even if they came for a preparatory day one week before the first general rehearsal with the singers, they'd, they'd you know, huff and puff and say, no, oh, we can't afford that. But I it's think, it, so, I think it would really benefit the process. I, I agree. It's so crucial that the orchestra is an absolutely equal part and the collaboration, I, I just feel, needs to, can happen sooner. What profession, other than your own, would you like to attempt or have liked to attempt it? I have two, I think. The first, I don't know if it's a profession, but I'd really like to be a philanthropist. <laughs> I'm not sure it's a pro- profession, but it's a, yeah, wonderful thing. And I, I would give all the money to, to music. Um, so that would be one thing I'd like to do. Uh, otherwise, well, I mean, it would be very interesting, I think, to work in space science, in astrophysics, or any science, really. But, yeah, to, to work on the International Space Station or something like that. Mm, mm. That would be very interesting. And, and I think, you know, we were talking about scores and looking from the, from the outside in. It, wouldn't it just be so incredible to be able to see the world from the outside? Hmm. from the outside of the world <laughs> are you one of these people who'd be interested in doing this these short trips up out of the atmosphere and back again yes yeah. no question i'd love to do that yeah i mean there's a whole list of sort of documentary subjects that if i see one i'll probably sit and watch it and anything to do with space travel and space exploration i will sit and watch um i find it fascinating whether i would want to go to space i'm not sure i would but uh, I do find it very, very, very interesting. There was a documentary I saw the other day. Uh, in fact, it was just the other night uh, talking about the first lunar landing, and there was a photograph, and the narrator pointed out that the photograph that this person had, had taken, they had the two other astronauts. It was Michael Collins took the, the photograph, and Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were in the shot, and the whole of planet Earth. And he said, it's amazing to mm. think that every human being is in this photograph, except for one, <laughs> Michael Collins, the person yeah. who took the photograph. And um, I sat there thought, thinking, well, if they were up there now, we could, he could actually just do it with a selfie, with a phone, and actually get, get everybody in the whole yeah. world. But, you know, that, that's yeah. what it was like in 1969. Oh, we could chat about this for hours, but we ought to get on to number 10. And number 10 is the final question, and it is if the world were to end tonight... What would be your choice of final meal and drink? Yeah, I thought this is a really interesting question because 
I'm not sure I would eat if I knew it was going to be the last night. I think I'd probably want to do other things. That's very uh, true. <laughs> as opposed to spending my time eating. Uh, I wouldn't really need that sustenance for whatever future there it may or may not be. Um, but to answer the question. Um, I mean, you're right to say what you say. <laughs> you're right to say what you say because... Basically, it was my way of saying, what's your favourite meal? I just thought it was a boring question. Uh, and so, so when I invented the questions for the podcast, <laughs> I had to come up with a way of... And only one other person, I think Thierry Fisher, said, if, I, if I'm about to meet my maker, I don't want to eat at all. I shall fast. But, yeah, you, you're right in what you're saying. But it, it was a you know, a terrible way of, of phrasing, what's your favourite meal, Jessica? <laughs> See, I think I took the question really literally, because I was no, thinking, no. then again, if I had to eat a meal the end of the world I'd eat um I'm I'm unable to eat gluten I have a, a, a celiac so I thought well if it was the last meal I ever ate I'd probably eat pizza and bagel and pasta because <laughs> I wouldn't experience the negative side no, no, no that's true <laughs> <laughs> so I'd really go for it uh, my favorite meal um I I should I really like chocolate dark, a good dark chocolate yeah. keeps me happy and something to wash it down, be it oh, chocolate yes, or your gluten, yes. your gluten feast. It, <laughs> wash it down. Um, maybe a Glenmorangie single malt. Oh, what a wonderful choice! That is a really good choice. I've had a wonderful hour. It's been so much fun chatting about all sorts of things, from synesthesia to butterflies and um, yeah, conducting to chocolate and whiskey. Been wonderful. Thank you for, and I hope in, very, in the very near future we get to meet in person, uh, and maybe share a, a nice bar of chocolate and a single malt whiskey. I'm looking forward to that. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to a conductor who hails from Northern Ireland. He's conducted in the UK and further afield on the concert platform, but is probably better known for his work conducting ballet. He's worked with ballet companies all across the globe, but is probably best known for being the principal conductor of Birmingham Royal Ballet, a position he's held for the last 24 years. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>